0: What a sad ending to a wonderful warm Italian novel full of yearning for the past. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today's podcast is all about the second half of The Moon and the Bonfire by Cesare Pavese. So the idea of the podcast is that we'll read the first half of the book together, share our thoughts, maybe make a few predictions, and then at the second podcast, we'll deal with the second half of the book. We can decide if it's a book worth recommending or not. Of course, you don't have to read anything at all. If you're into Audible, then you can listen to the book, or you can do neither, of course, and just join me for the ride. I'll be summarising what happens in the book just for you, but be aware there may be spoilers. You can leave a comment or start a conversation at the Bookshook YouTube channel or send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd love to have your comments and your recommendations for further books to read together. Welcome to Bookshook. So this podcast is all about the second half of the moon and the bonfire from chapter 26 to the end. Back at Gemonella, Valino is a taskmaster, and he thrashes Sinto and the two women with a belt. And I'm just thinking, well, what a horrible, horrible person. But the narrator, Eel, is very matter-of-fact about the horrific act, and Nuto doesn't want to fix Valino's vat because he's worried that he'll say something rude, and Nuto says that money brutalises men, uh, not poverty. Quote, I know, he said, this is speaking. I know that if I speak to him, that's Valino, I'll miscall him and tell him he's living like a wild animal. How can I say that? Would it be any use? First of all, the government would have to do away with money and the people who defend it. Going along the road, I asked him if he was convinced it was really poverty that brutalised men. Have you never read in the papers about these millionaires who take drugs and shoot themselves? There are vices that cost money. He answered that there you were. It's the money that does it, always the money, whether you had it or not. As long as it existed, there was no way out for anyone. But ultimately, they both go to Gaminella and Eel spies the unnamed other lady who lives with Valino. And it is not Rosina, who's the sister-in-law. It looks like she's dying. We still don't know exactly who she is. And Nuto comments that the animals have more food than the workers at Gaminella. Quote, Nuto and Valino came out of the stable. You've a fine beast there, Nuto was saying. Do you get enough food for it here? You're crazy, said Felino. That's the Padronas affair. Things have come to a pretty pass, said Nuto, when an owner provides food for the beast, but not for the men who till the soil. His communist feelings are coming out there. My question as to whether Sinto will be helped is beginning to be answered. This is Eel talking, quote, "'Every time I meet Sinto, I thought of giving him a few lira, but then I held back. He wouldn't have been able to enjoy them, for what could he do with them? But this time we stopped, and it was Nuto who said, "'Did you find the adder?' Sinto made a face and said, "'If I find it, I'll cut off its head.' "'If you don't annoy it, the adder won't bite you,' said Nuto." Then I remembered when I was a boy myself, and I said to Sinto, if you're passing the Albergo Angelo on Sunday, I'll give you a fine clasp knife. Will you? said Sinto, his eyes opening wide. I said I would. Do you ever go to Nuto's house at Salto? You'd like it. There are benches and planes and screwdrivers. If your father would let you, I'd have you taught a trade. Sinto shrugged his shoulders. My father, he muttered, I won't tell him. When he'd gone, Newton said, I understand everything, but not a boy who comes into the world crippled like that. What's he going to do there? In the next chapter, Eel ponders when he first met Nuto at Lamoro, and he learns that you can access a different life through music. Quote, He must have been 15, but to me he seemed a man already. Everyone was speaking and telling stories, and the lads were making the girls laugh. Newton had brought his guitar and he played on it instead of stripping the millet. He could play well even at that time. At the end, they all danced and shouted, Well done, Newton. So he's managed to get away without doing the physical labor of stripping the millet. Music has elevated him above that. Eon admires Nuto, he's older, wiser, cleverer, and he's a very good speaker. Eon might be in love with Nuto in some kind of way, and maybe he was unable to express it in the 1950s. But I think as I read through part two, I, I could see that it was really just a very, very strong friendship with Nuto like a brother. Nuto's clever, quote, he told me that it isn't what you do, but how you do it that shows whether you are clever or not. And that some mornings when he wakened, he felt like going to the bench himself and setting about making a table. "'What are you frightened at?' he said. "'You learn a thing by doing it. "'If you want to do it, that's enough. "'If I'm wrong, put me right.'" And he goes on to critique those who don't do and those who just live off the work of others, like Nicoletto, who's the horrible lawyer who cut down the pine trees. Quote, "'In the years that followed, "'I learned a great deal more from Yuto.'" Or perhaps it was only that I was growing up and beginning to understand things on my own, but it was he who explained to me why Nicoletta was so nasty. He doesn't know any better, he said. He thinks that because he stays in Albert and wears shoes every day and no one makes him work, he's a cut above us peasants, and his people send him to school. It's you who keep him by working his family's land. But he doesn't even see that. It is Nuto that, ironically, shows Eel a life, quote, over the hills of boats and of travel. Nuto teaches that all women have sexual urges regardless of what the priest says. Quote, it's the same moon for everyone. Like the rain or sickness, it doesn't matter whether they live in a hole in the ground or in a fine house, blood is red everywhere. But what does the priest say? That is a sin, and that's Eel uh, speaking. It's a sin on Fridays, said Nuto, wiping his mouth. But there are six other days, so Mateo takes on Eel as a labourer, and he earns money for the first time. And Yuto tells Eel to spend his earnings on an ocarina. Instead, he dreams of travelling, and then he ends up spending the money it was earned at a fair. Why shouldn't I buy an ocarina? I couldn't learn to play it, I told him. It's no use. I was born like that. It's so easy, he said. That's new to I had another idea. I was thinking that. If I had the money, I'd be able to leave here some fine day. Instead, the money I earned in the summer, I squandered the whole lot at the fair. At the shooting booth and other silly things. Newton has a philosophy that men can be like dogs. Quote, was allowed to go about and crack jokes without anyone taking any notice. He knew a good few people at Canelli and when he heard they wanted to take it out of someone, he called them all sorts of fools and told them to leave the job to people who were paid for it. He made them think shame of themselves. He told them it was only dogs that bark and go for strange dogs and men sat on a dog because it suits them to show that they're all still masters. But if the dogs weren't dumb animals, they would come to an agreement with each other and start barking at them. Where he had got these ideas from, I don't know, unless from his father or from some tramp. He said it was like the war, which had been fought in 1918, a whole pack of dogs unleashed by the masters so that they would kill each other and the masters be left in command. You only needed to read the papers that came out then to understand that the world is full of people who set on their dogs. Nuto forgets his old family, Patrino, Angelina, and Julia. And Il covertly buys a huge knife for Sinto. And at this point in the book, I'm thinking, what on earth is he doing? Why is this going to help Sinto out of poverty? In what way? Especially as Sinto says, if he takes it from me, that is his father, I'll kill him. So I don't think that giving a knife is a particularly good idea eel reflects when he was not allowed to go to the fair and it profoundly upset him and obviously still does he spends a lot of the chapter thinking about time not able to go to the fair there's a lovely quote about it here what would i have given to see the world still through cinto's eyes to start again in gaminella like him with the same father with the same leg even now that i knew so much and was able to look after myself carries on i think longingly of these days when i look back on them now and wish i could be a boy again i wished i could be in the farmyard at lamora again that August afternoon when they 'd all gone to the fair at Canelli. he really misses going to this fair at Canelli. anyway, Ill continues reminiscing on Lamora, and Newton and he 'll find a trunk of books quotes that was how he came to know elephants and lions and whales. And Irene plays the piano beautifully. Uh, her music kind of sends him on a bit of a journey. Quote, ''I saw the flowers in the room and the mirrors and Irene's straight back and the effort of her arms and her fair hair against the page. And I saw the hills and the vineyards and the watercourses. And I realised that this music wasn't the same as the stuff the band played. It spoke of other things. It wasn't meant for Gamonella, nor the trees beside the Belbo, nor for us.'' But in the distance towards Canelli, you could see Ilnida against the outline of Salto, the fine red house set among the yellowing plane trees. And the music Irene played went with the fine house, with the gentry at Canelli. It was meant for them. And at this point in the book, I'm still thinking, why did he go to prison? And when will we find out? In chapter 21, he describes a bit of a vapid relationship with a woman called Roseanne in the USA. Uh, he doesn't seem to be able to have any meaningful relationships with women. In the last podcast, I should have mentioned he's quite dismissive of women. As an example, this is the beginning of chapter 22. Quote, I've known a few women on my travels, fair ones and dark. I've gone after them and spent a pretty penny on them. Now that I'm not young anymore, they come after me, but what does it matter? And I've realised that Sor Matea's daughters weren't the prettiest after all. Santina, perhaps, but then i didn't see her when she grew up they had the same beauty as dahlias or roses all the flowers that grow in gardens under the fruit trees i've come to realize that they weren't very clever either and that in spite of their piano playing and their novels and their tea drinking and their parasols they couldn't manage their own lives they weren't cut out to be real ladies and to lord it over a man in a house this is just typical of his of his attitude to women's just very dismissive so Irene and Sylvia didn't manage themselves very well. That's how they died, he says. The Countess who lives in Il Nino forgets to invite Irene and Sylvia to her party, and both Irene and Sylvia are mortified. And now we begin. A lot of part two is all about Eel's obsession with the parting and the love life of Sylvia and Irene the doctor's son arturo fancies irene but irene doesn't think much of him however she does take a fancy to arturo's friend and they become lovers and eel enjoyed watching the two sisters and their lovers and then in chapter 24 eel becomes a gig driver for a party the sisters go to at El nido which is the house nearby he overhears them talking about their boyfriends for example irene is seeing a grandson of the countess who lose in Il Nido. And Sylvia has dalliances, and Eel is keen to recount them to us. Irene continues to see a chap called Cesarino, quotes lively as a corpse, and Sylvia beds the more wild Matteo. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking it is very self-indulgent part of the novel. He seems to be glorifying in Irene and Sylvia's love life. He doesn't seem to be recounting an awful lot about his own life. Irene suddenly dies of typhus, at least I thought she did, because the priest has been ordered, but we find out later that she's not actually dead. Sylvia and Santina are sent away, and again this is a very dispassionate brief description of her illness. I don't think we're supposed to be very sympathetic of Eel. He's a bit slippery like an eel, I think. Always wanting to get away. Eel contemplates that nothing really changes. Quote, one thing I always think about is how many people there must be living in this valley and in the world. For that matter, and the very same things are happening to them now, as happened to us then, and they don't know it and never give it a thought, he carries on. They haven't changed a bit, boys or women, or the world, they don't carry parasols anymore, and on Sunday they go to the cinema instead of the fester, and they send their grain to the grain pool, and the girls smoke, and yet life is still the same, and they don't know that one day they'll look round about them and for them too, it'll all be over. Now here in Newtale, they're kind of like brothers. Eel doesn't see anyone else from his youth, but sometimes Newto introduces someone who remembers quote, things I had done, jokes I had played and stories I had forgotten. And Newton asks, would you do it again? Go to America if you were 20? And Eel says, I told him that it hadn't been America that had done it so much as the rage at not being anybody, the wild desire more than to go away, to come back one fine day after everyone had given me up as dead of hunger. But it isn't easy to get on board ship, said Newton. You had courage. It hadn't been courage, I said to him. I ran away. It's quite interesting that he ran away. Ran away from what? He was having radical conversations about communism 20 years previously when he was a believer in communism. And actually his friends got captured, but he was rescued by Teresa. Quote, Teresa, without a word of reproach, spoke to someone, her brother-in-law, her former boss, I don't know which, and in two days she had found me a job as a deckhand on a boat leaving for America. That was how it was, I said to Newton. So he basically ran away to America. Sinto runs to Eel, my father has hung himself and killed the women and burnt Gaminella down. And this is at the end of the chapter, out of the blue, we've just heard that Eel ran away to America and then Sinto runs in, mortified that his father tried to kill everyone and has burnt his house down. Wow. So I hope that knife that Eel gave to Sinto wasn't anything to do with this outburst from Valino. Perhaps it was the knife that scared him. If it was, it makes a certain amount of sense since a message in the book is that money can't solve problems, but doing or having the tools to do can. Eel didn't give him any money, but he did give him a tool, a tool that may just have saved his life, though. At the beginning of the next chapter, though, he says he'd lost the knife. Which makes me think, oh, maybe that's not the case. Perhaps Sinto went on the rampage with his knife. Maybe he was lying. Maybe he was the one who tried to kill his father and the women living in Gaminella. According to Sinto, Valino beat Rosina and the grandmother to death. And Valino sees Sinto with a knife and, quote, you bastard, he shouts, chasing him. And Sinto recounts that he then hung himself. So, very, very dramatic. And then there's more talk of Sylvia and Irene's love life. Uh, so is fed up with his family, then the old lady at Il Nido dies, and then Sylvia becomes pregnant, but then she dies due to an abortion. And Irene then marries Arturo, and Arturo sells the piano, the horse, the grazing rights, and beats Irene, so it doesn't work out well for the two ladies. Again, he's fascinated with the loves of these two girls. I want to, at this point in the novel, want to hear more about Il and his loves. But we don't really get that. He's hiding something, and I don't think we ever really find out. Eel recounts driving Irene and Sylvia to Juan Consiglio, which is kind of a horse race or a party. He's kind of forgotten about Sinto at this point until the next chapter, we suddenly get more of Sinto. It transpires that Nuto is now taking care of Sinto, not Eel. What a surprise. Eel agrees that he'll find Sinto a job in Genoa, but actually, it's, it's Nuto that takes him in and cares for him. Newton and Eel head up a mountain together, and Eel mentions Sylvia and Irene. Newton says he was there when Santa died. She worked for the fascist party. She went off with the militia lieutenant Alessandrio, and then she returned to Canelli. And quote: she was getting drunk and going to bed with the black shirts. Santa passed information about troop movements to Newton and to the partisans. And she protects Nuto and Lamora with her information. Quotes, Nuto tried hard to see if she was lying, and eventually told her that these are times when you have to make up your mind to be on one side or the other, and that he had made up his mind and was on the same side as the deserters and the partisans and the communists. He should have asked her to act as their spy at the command post, but he hadn't dared. He couldn't stomach the idea of making a woman, especially Santa, run such risks. But Santa thought of it and told Nuto a lot about troop movements, about the circulars the command sent out. And what the Repubblicini were saying. Another day, she sent word to him not to come to Canelli because it was dangerous, and the Germans did indeed raid the squares and the cafes. Santa said that she herself ran no risks, that they were old acquaintances of hers and worthless ones at that who came to her to get things off their chest, and that they'd have sickened her if it hadn't been for the information she was able to pass on to the partisans. The morning that the black shirts shot the two boys under the plane trees and left them lying like dogs, Santa came on her bicycle to La Mora and from there to Salto, and spoke to Nuto's mother, telling her if they had a rifle or a pistol to hide it in the watercourse. Two days later, the black shirts came that way and turned the house upside down. So she is trying to help with her information. Santa is then stuck, not wanting to work for the fascists but also unable to go back to La Mara, and she can't escape to the hills because everyone knows her as, quote, that fascist woman so she runs off to Canelli and then two months later, the fascists come for her so she runs off to the hills with the local communist leader, Baraka but she was acting as a spy for the fascists and Baraka orders her death and the reason for that... Quote, the numbers of those who had deserted at her instigation, the number of dumps we had lost, the number of men who had died because of her. And so she tries to run away, but she is shot in the back. And Eel Muses, might we find the body someday? But Nuto says... Quote, you won't find her. You can't cover a woman like her with earth and leave her like that. There were still too many men who wanted her. Baraka saw to that. He made us cut a lot of twigs in the vineyard and we piled them on top of her until we had enough. Then we poured petrol on the pile and set fire to it. By midday, everything was burnt to ashes. Last year, the mark was still there, like the bed of a bonfire. And that's the last word in the novel, bonfire. And that's why I think the novel is the moon and the bonfire, not bonfires. It's a reference to Santa and her death. Nuto, I think, was in love with Santa. There was definitely a love for her, I think. So the novel ends and the questions from part one, not really satisfactorily answered... Will Angio help Sinto, the poor boy? Well, he gave him a knife which may have saved his life or may have provoked his father, who who really knows. It is Nuto that actually looks after the destitute Sinto, although Eel does promise him a job. The other question was, will Angio continue to reminisce on his past? Yes, certainly he did. He reminisced about Lamora and Sylvia and Irene. And the third question, why was he imprisoned? Did he kill anyone? We don't know did he murder probably not i don't think we'll ever find out so there we go it's certainly an interesting novel to read there are some themes that continued into the second half of the book the cutting down of the trees nicoletta cut down the pine tree at lamora this is definitely a theme throughout the book the cutting down of trees and it representing modernization trees are rooted in the landscape and eel wants to feel part of something and the cutting down of the trees just represents him being cut away from his home or his landscape. Revealing names late is a common theme throughout the book. The sister-in-law, Rosina, is not revealed till very late in the book. She was first mentioned on page 32. Her actual name wasn't mentioned till page 93. Is he drip-feeding us facts, revealing things slowly like his dark past? Signora is is actually Signora Elvira. Her name, Elvira, is not revealed until very late in the book. And Cesarino, again, is not revealed until later. The other woman in Gaminella is only revealed to be Chinde's grandmother on page 152, very, very late into the book. The nostalgia certainly continues. I read that quote, he wishes he could be a boy again. I'll read it one more time. What would I have given to see the world still through Sinto's eyes, to start again in Gamonella like him, with the same father, with the same leg, even now that I knew so much and was able to look after myself? I think longing of these days, when I look back on them now and wish I could be a boy again, and I wished I could be in the farmyard at La Mora again that August afternoon when they had all gone to the fair at Canelli nostalgia continuing to be a theme and genoa is not even enough for him place is not enough he's striving to go beyond where he is so would i recommend it to someone to read i think it's a very interesting novel that deals with nostalgia homecoming politics what it is to be italian maybe live in the italian heat what it is to know poverty i think it's a very good book i would recommend it not to everyone but to certain people anyway i definitely want to find out a little bit more about pavese and about the initial reception of the moon and the bonfire so when i do that i will resume this podcast and let you know my thoughts So I've had a look at the life of Pavese. He was born in 1908 on a farm in Piedmont. He was educated in Turin where he took his literature degree with a thesis on Walt Whitman. He later became a schoolmaster. And in 1930, he began to contribute essays on American literature to La Cultura, of which he became an editor in 1934. Alongside that, he began a series of translations of books by English and American writers like Defoe, Dickens, Joyce, Melville, Stein and Faulkner. And this influenced him a lot, not only his own narrative style, but also that of other Italian novelists. So in 1935, he was arrested for anti-fascist activities and sentenced to preventative detention at the lonely seashore prison of Branchaglione. And this formed the basis of The Political Prisoner. And between 1936 and 1949, of his books were published in Italy. These include novels, short stories, poetry and some essays. He committed suicide in 1950 the translation that i've got was a 1952 translation which is actually a little bit out of date now the correct translation of the book is the moon and the bonfires so my point at the end about the bonfire and santa's grave being a key thing in the book i've probably been misled i think it's just by chance that we've got that final bonfire i think the, the bonfires and the moon is certainly to do with the superstition that people have and when they're working with the land but also there was that point about Those in authority making up ideas to keep the proletariat under some kind of control. And the the idea of moon and bonfires was possibly the reason. Remember, Newton says, The moon, we must believe in the moon. Try to cut down a pine tree when the moon is full and you'll be eaten by worms. You should wash a great vat when the moon is new. As for grafting, unless you do it when the moon is only a few days old, it doesn't take and the bonfires they talk about how they're awakening the earth and eel says you can't believe in those superstitions and newton said very quietly that a superstition is a superstition only when it does harm to someone and if anyone were to use the moon and the bonfires to rob the peasants and keep them in the dark then he would be the backward one and should be shot in the square The moon also could represent uh, or symbolize a longing for, you know, what's over the hill or in the distance. And the bonfire could represent rootedness or, or the feeling of home. And the book definitely explores those two themes, what it's like to leave somewhere and what it's like to want to try and rediscover your roots. Okay, I'd like to talk a little bit now about the upcoming book. It's going to be John Steinbeck, East of Eden. I don't know anything about East of Eden at all. I've read The Grapes of Wrath, which I really enjoyed, and I've read The Pearl, which I didn't quite enjoy as much. I'm going to read the first page the salinas valley is in northern california it is a long narrow swale between two ranges of mountains and the salinas river winds and twists up the center until it falls at last into monterey bay i remember my childhood names for grasses and secret flowers i remember where a toad may live and what time the birds awaken in the summer and what trees and seasons smelled like how people looked and walked and smelled even the memory of odors is very rich i remember that the gabilan mountains to the east of the the valley were light gay mountains full of sun and loveliness and a kind of invitation so that you wanted to climb into their warm foothills almost as you want to climb into the lap of a beloved mother they were beckoning mountains with a brown grass love the santa lucius stood up against the sky to the west and kept the valley from the open sea and they were dark and brooding unfriendly and dangerous i always found in myself a dread of west and a love of east Where I ever got such an idea I cannot say, unless it could be that the morning came over the peaks of the Gabilans and the night drifted back from the ridges of the Santa Lucias. It may be that the birth and death of the day had some part in my feeling about the two ranges of mountains from both sides of the valley little streams slipped out of the hill canyons and fell into the bed of the Salinas River in the winter of wet years the streams ran full freshet and they swelled the river until sometimes it raged and boiled bank full and then it was a destroyer the river tore the edges of the farmlands and washed whole acres down it toppled barns and houses into itself to go floating and bobbing away it trapped cows and pigs and sheep and drowned them in its muddy brown water and carried them to the sea then when the late spring came the river drew in from its edges and the sandbanks appeared and in the summer the river didn't run at all above ground some pools would be left in the deep swirl places under a high bank the tools and grasses grew back and willows straightened up with the flood debris in their upper branches, the salinas was only a part-time river. The summer sun drove it underground. It was not a fine river at all, but it was the only one we had, and so we boasted about it, how dangerous it was in a wet winter and how dry it was in a dry summer. You can boast about anything if it's all you have. Maybe the less you have, the more you're required to boast. Fantastic. Okay, I'm looking forward to reading that. Halfway through the book is page 364 chapter two thanks very much for listening if you have any questions or comments i'd love to hear them the email is bookshook at yahoo.com or you can leave a comment on the bookshook youtube channel i look forward to discussing the first part of east of eden at the next episode of bookshook see you then